Uh, friends, while you're taking a seat, you might want to grab your Bible from in front of you and open up to page 606. We're going to read from Ezekiel chapter 28. Jacques will bring us our first reading. Good evening, church, on this chilly evening. I'll give you a minute to find your places. So that's Ezekiel 28, verses 1 to 19, page 606. Or if you have an iPhone and are cool. Not. Um, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth, and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you. The most ruthless of nations, they will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a god, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a god, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you computed, corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you, and I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. The next, re the next reading will be found on page 831. That's Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Hi, good evening, friends. Uh, welcome to church tonight. Uh, it's great to see you here on this long weekend um, where we celebrate the Queen's birthday. It was good to pray for her earlier. Um, tonight, uh, my sermon really is called Everyone Needs Jesus. And because it's the Queen's birthday and, and it actually ties in pretty nicely with Ezekiel 28, I've kind of called it Everyone Needs Jesus, Even the Queen. Um, that's what we're looking at tonight, Ezekiel chapter 28, 1 to 19 in particular, within the context of Ezekiel chapters 25 through to 32. Um, if you've been with us over the last little while, if this will work, there we go. Yeah, if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, uh, if you haven't been with us over the last couple of weeks, can I, uh, can I commend to you going to our website and downloading uh, talks one and two on Ezekiel as we've covered in those two weeks, 24 chapters. Uh, the first week, as you can see, this is my J-curve of the book of Ezekiel. Things have to get a lot worse before they get a lot better, that's the phrase, until we see that it's as good as it gets, uh, as good as it can be. The opening talk, we looked at the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 1 and how that just sets up the whole book of Ezekiel, uh, the God who sees everything, who knows everything, who can go everywhere. Nothing escapes uh, his vision, his gaze, and his action. Uh, last week, if you were here, we looked at those pretty awful chapters, chapters 4 to 24, uh, where God pronounces a really harsh judgment upon his people. Uh, Ezekiel, this man, this prophet who speaks the word of God, speaks the word of God to Israel, God's chosen people, when God's chosen people are far from their home in Jerusalem, far from their temple, far from Jerusalem in Babylon, in exile, under the judgment of God. They kind of had this optimistic idea, it can't get much worse than this, but as we saw last week, it can get a lot worse, and God pronounced a very harsh judgment, to the point where he said to his people, Israel, your only hope is me. It, it, you're hopeless hoping in religion, you're hopeless hoping in all the things you do, because that's why you're here, in judgment, in exile. Your only hope, your only place to go is to come to me for mercy. That's the picture we got last week and we, we ultimately see that our only hope as Christians post the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, that's what we come to tonight. Uh, as Ezekiel pronounces another judgment, this time it's on the nations around Israel. Um, he continues to be a messenger of hopelessness. Uh, but there's great hope tonight for us again in the Lord Jesus. How about I pray? as we come before Ezekiel, particularly chapter 28 tonight. Let's pray. Our God, our great God and heavenly Father, we take your word into our hands now and we open it. And we put our lives into your hands that you open them up, we pray. Uh, open up our lives that we would 
meet you tonight, the living God, in the pages of Scripture. And Lord, and by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, be our teacher this night. Encourage our faith and focus our vision. Strengthen our commitment this night, Father, to walk in your ways. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ, through him, who is our Lord. Amen. Amen. These were days for Israel of national hopelessness. National hopelessness. These were days of anxiety, but more, they were days of despair for the people of Israel. Uh, They were actually days of terror for the people of Israel. Already they'd been conquered by the juggernaut, the massive might of the Babylonians, And it was only a matter of time before the nation of Israel, their nation, their capital city, their prestigious temple would be absolutely smashed to pieces, wiped clean, actually destroyed. And we've got to know this prophet, haven't we, if you've been here for two weeks over the last couple of weeks. And we've seen that he's a messenger of hopelessness. Sometimes as I've been reading through and working on Ezekiel, I've kind of thought to myself, well, surely, I don't know if you've had this thought, in the the situation Israel finds themselves, surely God would send to them someone who would preach a beautiful word of comfort, a word of it's all going to be okay, you know, someone who would come into the world, sit alongside them, put their arm around them all and say, by the sides of the Kabar River in Babylon, Boney M's great hymn, by the rivers of Babylon we sat down, you'd expect that, This prophet would be one of those kind of guys, just warm, comfortable. Let me just speak to you tenderly while you're in these awful situations. We'd expect a word of comfort. You'd expect, you know, a little bit like your kindly pastor when you're despairing and anxious and facing terrible, horrific times. You know, put his gentle arm around you and speak a word of tender word to you, words of hope. But the the prophet Ezekiel is not that man. He's not that man. He's not the kind of guy you'd probably invite as a new member of your ministry staff here at Church by the Bridge. Someone to kind of help look after Saturday night's congregation and maybe over at Lavender Bay. Not so far, anyway. For he brought a message that powerfully undermined the hope that Israel had. He said to them, the national disaster that had come upon them that Babylon had rolled in, kicked them out. It was nothing short of God's doing. It was nothing short of the judgment of God. And God was not yet finished. They were experiencing nothing less than the judgment of God as they sat by the rivers of Babylon. This is a great display of God's judgment. Last time God displayed this sort of level of judgment was against the Egyptians. It happened to Assyria before. Nation after nation after nation had faced the full judgment of God. And this time, however, it was God's own people. They were under the judgment of God. And like we saw last week, chapters 4 to 24 spanned seven years of Ezekiel's ministry. Judgment, 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 judgment. No hope for Israel. No hope for Israel. God himself is against you against you, he's not for you, and he hasn't finished yet. But tonight, friends, we come to the next section in Ezekiel's prophecy, chapters 25 to 32, 
We'll only focus on that small section, 28, 1 to 19. Keep that open in front of you. But this section has a different focus. After seven years of judgment upon his own people, Israel, God now turns his attention to the nations around Israel. And here's my phrase for tonight. No one can escape the justice of God. And ultimately, so no one can escape their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to unpack what that means. Because tonight, chapters 25 to 32, deal with God's word to the nations beyond Israel. The nations that dwelt around Jerusalem at the time. I don't think the nations actually heard these words necessarily. I don't think Ezekiel went on a sort of preaching tour like Paul has down to Canberra to sort of tell the world what's going on. I think the rest of the book of Ezekiel, as it has been the whole way through, Ezekiel speaking to the people of God in Babylon. Nonetheless, tonight, God speaks to the nations of the world around Israel. So the question for me tonight is, what are these ancient words addressed to an ancient pagan people from an ancient prophet? What do they teach us tonight? If you actually, if we had a map on the screen, you'd see that as these chapters unfold, they work in a clockwise direction around the nation of Israel. Uh, God speaks a word to the nation of Ammon, to Moab, to Edom, for, to Philistia, to Tyre. Read of these chapters as you go into your quiet times this week. But why? Why, after God's been banging on against the sin of his own people, does he now turn to the nations around? Well, it was Israel's problem in many ways. Because what Israel had done, they'd allowed their perception of God to grow too small. God had become, in their mind, their possession, failing to see that actually, no, they were God's possession. Their God had become contained. Their God had become confined to their thinking just to the borders of Israel, just to their nation. For some of them in Israel, it was just to the walls within the temple. That's the only place God could go. But as the judgment of God is falling on Jerusalem... We are shown here in the book of Ezekiel that the God who so judged Israel, the God whose wrath was revealed from heaven against Israel, this God addresses the nations. And the Israelites needed to hear that. It would seem that we, modern, as I've called us, modern, hirabilly, hipster Christians, are under the same pressure precisely that the ancient Israelites were under. To somehow nod approvingly to the word of God as we hear it here in church. Yes, to hear, how God, or to hear God's word gladly, and even like last week, a severe word of God, to hear it gladly, nevertheless, we, we walk away going, yeah, I hear God speak to me tonight, I'll walk away and I'll change accordingly by his power. Nevertheless, to allow our thinking about God to shrink. To hear God's word to us, his people, yes, to hear it gladly, that our hopes are only and properly found and located in God alone. And we grasp that and we live according to that, that our only hope is God, our only hope is Jesus. We hear that gladly. But at the same time, to contain God, 
to confine God to us, to fail to really believe that God can actually speak and actually address the nations. But he does. The God who speaks to you and to me tonight is not remote, He's not irrelevant, as most of my non-Christian friends and relatives think. He's not remote and irrelevant to the people I worked with largely in my last workplace when I was a physiotherapist. He's not remote and irrelevant to my friends. He's not remote and irrelevant to the largely non-Christian nation in which we live. He's not remote and irrelevant to the largely non-Christian world in which we live. God addresses the nations. And the only hope of everyone in our nation, in the nations, is Jesus, is God. No other hope. We focus tonight on perhaps the most important of these chapters, chapter 28, verses 1 to 19. And here, one of those nations, and here at least one of the kings of those nations, is addressed, the king of Tyre. If you haven't got your Bible open, open it up to chapter 28. The king of Tyre is taken perhaps as the epitome of a pagan man living in a pagan nature, in nation, and his true character is exposed. Follow me with you in your Bibles. Open it up, chapter 28, are the opening few verses from verse 1 of chapter 28. We see this great king uh, uncovered. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is, not, is no secret hidden from you? By your wisdom and understanding you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading you have increased your wealth and, be, and because of your wealth your heart has grown proud. Here is this great king of the ancient world, the king of Tyre. He's a king with an enormous self-esteem problem. That is, his self-esteem is the problem. I want, you to, I want us to work backwards through these verses just because we can. Um, verse 5, have a look with me, verse 5. He says, your heart has become proud. High self-esteem was his problem. There are any number of books you can buy in any number of bookshops around Sydney which will deal with any low self-esteem issues you have. However, the Bible seems to give much more attention to high self-esteem. Where did this king's elevated sense of self-esteem come from? From his great achievements. That's what it says in, chapter, in verses 4 and 5. Have a look at me, verse 4 and 5. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gotten wealth for yourself, gold and silver. By your great wisdom on the trading floor of the Australian Stock Exchange, you've increased your wealth and your heart has become proud. It wasn't actually the Australian Stock Exchange, obviously, but... Tyre at this time, in the time that this is written, was an extraordinarily prosperous nation. I wonder, have you ever met a wealthy, successful, humble person? Oh, by the grace of God, some do exist from time to time. 
a miracle of God's grace. We have some of those people who are wealthy, successful and yet humble here in our church. But in this world, they are really rare. There is nothing that creates in us a greater sense of our own importance than our success. And success breeds success. This thinking pervades our modern world, doesn't it? Doesn't it dominate your life? I think it dominates mine. I said last week, human life is only possible if we have hope. It's something to push us on towards the future, make sense of the life we're living now, a real hope, something to keep us going. Here we see the shape of what most of the people's hopes in our world takes. It's the hope of achievement. Based on achievements already accomplished, as so our human lives actually appear to advance from one achievement to the next, achievement after achievement after achievement. And if they don't, we don't achieve, we just long that they, we would achieve. And if one sense of achievement kind of fails, we just stop that and change tack and look for another sense of achievement somewhere else, constantly seeking achievement. And you might ask me, Simon, what's wrong with that? Simon, it's only natural, it's human to achieve and to enjoy achieving. That's, that's how we're made. But look at the accusation that's made at the king of Tyre in verse 2. This is what God says to him. This is what the Bible says to the person who is like him. 28 verse 2. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart you say, I'm a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But God says to him, you are a man not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God. That's how the king of Tyre put it. I am a God sitting on his island, city, fortress that he built for himself, feeling so secure, secure against all threats, land and sea, all that he achieved amassed around him. And what's wrong with that? What's wrong with this achievement mentality? It's what's ultimate in that mentality. That's what's wrong with it. And your final ground of hope is what? What is the final ground of hope when we think like that? When we live like that? Where does our security come when we think and live like that? What is it that gives life direction? What is it that makes sense of life and gives us confidence and purpose when we live like the king of Tyre? Well, it's me, my achievements. Modern man shares the achievement mentality with ancient man. This achievement mentality amounts to saying just what the king of Tyre said of himself. I am a god. Modern man never put it in those words, except I've maybe heard Lady Gaga get kind of close to it. But when in my hopes, my dreams, aspirations and achievements, I think there's nothing more ultimate than me, then what you're really saying is, I'm a God. There's no one greater than me. You can go to a conference every day of the week in Sydney to become, help you to be a God. They never published that. I wonder if we published a conference that said, become a better God, how many people would get to come to that. It's basically what you're doing. 
helping you achieve more, to find confidence more in your achievements, to be better, more successful. This is what the Lord God says to you and me tonight. You're but a man. You are not God. It's our creaturely kind of desire to usurp our creator, isn't it? It's the attitude at the root of all our human problems that began back in Genesis chapter 3. When my achievements, the hope that I invest in those achievements, the success that I hope will come from them, the joy, when all those things become the shape of my life, Read on in chapter, have a look at me, verses 6 to 10. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are as wise as a god, I'm going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations, and they will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendor. They'll bring you down to the pit and you will die violent death in the heart of the sea. Will you then say, I'm not a god, in the presence of those who will kill you? You will be but a man, not a god, in the hands of those who slay you. You will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of the foreigners. God will be God, you see. It's the one inescapable fact about all of our futures. God will be God, and I will not be God, and you will not be God. That's the other inescapable fact we we see here. Is it not clear then that my past or possible achievements are a hopeless shape for my hope to take on? Suppose I do, in fact, achieve my wildest dreams. I'm not going to tell you what my wildest dreams are, but think about your wildest dreams. Assuming you achieve your wildest dreams, suppose they come off. How fulfilled will you feel? How satisfied will you be? We Christians for years have been saying that fame and fortune don't actually ultimately bring happiness. They don't often, but they can, can't they? There's some satisfaction in achievement. It'd be nonsensical for me to stand up here and kind of deny that. But it only remains impressive until you take God into account. It's only impressive as long as you keep God out of your thinking. Why? God is not the great cosmic killjoy that hates to see us kind of enjoying life and having fun. No, no. It's just because God is God. And he will be God. We can no more defy the fact that God will be God than we can defy gravity. It might feel fantastic to just leap off the top of Centrepoint Tower in Sydney. Just free-falling, awesome, wind in the hair, having a great time. But reality is against you. There can be satisfaction and enjoyment in defying God and being our own gods, little g. But it can't go on like that forever because it is not reality. It's just not real. God is God and he will be God. It's interesting, in verse 11 and 12, Ezekiel is told to kind of change his tune. Have a look with me. He's actually now told to take up a lament, to feel kind of sorrow over the king of Tyre and what he's got himself into. You see, it's a great tragedy when we human beings, like 
the king of Tyre, actually pervert reality. Because the reality we pervert is so much better than our perversion of it. The lament works a little bit like this. It's a contrast between what you were, so to speak, and now what you have become. That's how it works. Have a look at me. Listen to the words. Uh, Verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Listen to these words, friends. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and others. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Who is that? Who is this? Did you pick up that description? Perfection. Perfect in beauty. Full of wisdom. Blameless in your ways. Who is he describing? Well, if you look at the context, which is always helpful, he's talking about the king of Tyre, verse 12. The king of Tyre? You were perfection. You were blameless. You were beautiful. You were wisdom. Really? I'm sure if we knew a little more of the king of Tyre, and especially if you're one of the original hearers hearing this word, you'd say, you've got to be kidding. The king of Tyre? Verse 13 says, you were in the garden of Eden. This is odd. This is, this is a description of the king of Tyre, a description of what he was like. And it's a description of the tragedy of what he's become turns out actually to be a description of Adam in the garden, way back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The poetry in these verses is beautiful. It highlights the wonder of the human being created by God, the model of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, blameless in his ways. Consciously living for God, consciously in relationship with God, made by God, loved by God, with God, walking with God, in relationship. This is how God created humankind. And it's strange to hear, isn't it, this is, that the king of Tyre was that? But that's precisely what God does say. For the king of Tyre is not just an ugly, pagan, rampaging king of a local nation. Behind him is something more basic than that. He's a human being. An everyday human being. And as such, it's from that position that he has fallen. But read in verse 15 as he goes on. You were like that until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned, so I drove you into disgrace from... The man of God, and I expelled you. And he goes on. The point is that we cannot appreciate the full 
and tragic fall of the king of Tyre simply by describing his life. He is a human being and as such he represents all humanity. Every human being. Every human being who is made in the image of God he represents. His fall and his judgment of God is there, therefore every human being's fall. And therefore we, like him, face the full judgment of God. Every one of us. We all, like the king of Tyre, face the full judgment of God. This is the tragedy of every human being. Our godless goals, our human achievements that we fill our lives with, our arrogance and pride of all that we have done, our independence from God, they are not only wrong, they're pathetic. We're created to live in a world where God is God and not we're not ultimate, he is ultimate. We're his creatures. And we should delight in being his creatures. Not seeking to overcome him, usurp him. You are the model of perfection. Full of wisdom, beautiful, blameless. God says, you and I, we've all fallen from that place, from Eden. And therefore it's foolish for any of us to set our hearts and our desires on anything less than what we have lost. As we finish, we must hear the word from the New Testament, which is anticipated by this Old Testament word. What does the tragedy of the king of Tyre What does our tragedy have to do with Jesus Christ? His death, his resurrection. What does Ezekiel chapter 28, King of Tyre, you and I, have anything to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus? It has everything to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus Christ came into the world to reverse this tragedy. As the Apostle Paul puts it, uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. We had read by Christiane, Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul puts it, despite Jesus' position with God in glory, Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. He puts it, he did not, Jesus did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. Took on the nature of a servant, he humbled himself. And humbled himself in obedience to God, even to the point of death, and even more so death on a cross. This morning, we've got to, tonight, we've got to look to him. We've got to see Jesus on the cross. We've got to see our achievement mentality, our goal-focused mentality, the mentality of, I am a God, For all that it is, see Jesus on the cross. In light of our pride, 
in his humility, he took our place, dying for our sin to re-establish our relationship with God. No one can escape God's judgment, as I finish, friends. No one can escape God's judgment. If you're a human, and you're human and you're here tonight, none of us can escape God's judgment. We are much, we are exactly the same as the king of Tyre. No one can escape God's judgment and his justice. We saw in Ezekiel chapter 1 in the opening vision, there is no one who can stand the searching gaze of God. He sees everything. He knows everything. He goes everywhere. Not even the king of Tyre escapes the word of God and his judgment. Not even the queen, not even you or I. And therefore, friends, no one tonight escapes their need for Jesus. You'll not meet a person this week who doesn't need Jesus, whether it's at work, the person serving you at the shops, the person opposing you when you play the sport you're going to play this week, driving in the car in front of you, eating breakfast at the table in front of you, no matter how nice they seem to be, we all need to hear about Jesus. That he took our place on the cross. He died in our place. He's the one who rescues us from the predicament that we face, which Ezekiel so vividly portrays. And friends, tonight as I close, I'm going to pray in a moment. If you're not a believer tonight, if you haven't come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness tonight, do it tonight. You can't escape the justice and judgment of God. And therefore you can't escape your need for Jesus. Please talk to me tonight. But let us be people, as we've heard in Open Encouragement tonight, continue to be people who hold out the truth of Jesus to our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues that they might be spared the judgment of God and be restored to the fullness of the person that we were when God created us. And we'll live like that forever with him. Let me close in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we've heard again from this prophet Ezekiel Father, we've heard him speak, or we've heard you speak through him to the nations. Father, we do pray tonight as your people here. Father, we do ask for your forgiveness that we, are the, we, your people here, have just kind of boxed you in and thought that you're our possession and therefore have not been willing to speak of you to others in our world. But Father, we realise tonight that everyone needs Jesus. Uh, because everyone will face your right judgment. And so, Father, I pray that you'd just put in our hearts right now names of people whom we'd love to tell about Jesus this week. And, Father, give us opportunity to speak of the truth of Jesus to them. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would live lives that honour the Lord Jesus Christ whom we'll bow before when we see him face to face. We pray in this we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.